Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com slash and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, in lovely Singapore and in the second month of our circuit breaker. And hopefully today we'll see a relaxing of the restrictions. And today our guest is Mark Cassidy calling in from Boston, Massachusetts. Mark, how are you today? I'm great, Frank. Really happy to join you. Well, same here. Same here. And for the benefit of our listeners, you may notice a subtle tinge of sarcasm throughout the broadcast where Mark has made the mistakes of being a Red Sox fan, whereas I am a devout Yankees fan. <laughs> so, so I think today, Mark, we're going we're gonna to have to drop the Sabres and, and, and uh, uh, just forsake baseball, if that's okay with you. We'll that's keep that out of the conversation. Baseball has forsaken us. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You know, just as an aside, uh, I'll make one, one subtle dig. I, I was talking with a very good friend of mine, another rabid Yankees fan, and, and perversely, actually, the lockdown has worked to our benefit, given the injuries. So we, we, we may have a healthy team coming into we the year. We probably will, yeah. By the time they finish negotiating between the players and the owners, you know, the, the season will be all but over. <laughs> that's right. It'll be like a one-week season. Probably, yeah. Get, Unbelievable. So, Mark, I, I think you know we were saying ahead of the um, ahead of the broadcast that there's just so much that you and I could talk about, and and one of the things I, I've always found fascinating was that in in your prior life, where you were the CEO of LPL, uh, one of the nation's largest broker dealers, one of the nation's largest networks of advisors, you've done a phenomenal job of of building that franchise into the success that it is today. And, and I'm going to tease you as a friend, but, but what in God's name provoked you or coerced you into thinking going into venture capital, especially in fintech, was a good idea? What made you do that? <laughs> what craziness led me to that? Yeah. <laughs> well, a few things. Thank you for your kind words. Um, LPL is a very special business and really special clients and the financial advisors who serve uh, uh, U.S. consumers with financial advice, particularly critical in times like these where you know there's not much clarity about what to do or how to do it. And there's a lot of emotion and they do a great job of, of removing that emotion and having people stay the course, which is uh, much needed in, in these, these days. Um, but for me, I had felt like I had learned what I was going to learn in that role. 
absolutely loved it. Um, my joke was even I was tired of me being CEO <laughs> because <laughs> I've been CEO and, and chairman for, I think, 12 years or something. I've been at the company for 14 years. And, uh, and it was just, you know, to a point where everything felt like it was repeating itself. And therefore, for me, I wasn't getting personal growth. Loved the people I worked with, loved our customers, loved the business. Um, but I just found that, that I was really repeating, you know, lessons learned from previous years, which for me is atrophy. Um, uh-huh. And so I, I said, I just you know, can't continue doing that and, uh, and gave the board fair warning in terms of, of that issue. And then we just worked through, you know, what the timing would be. It was probably two or three years between my realization of wanting to, to do something new and, and the actual ability to do that. But, um, but was really pleased with, uh, you know, being able to do what I was doing there, but to move on to the venture capital business. And, and Mark, just to go back a step, what, what, uh, refresh my memory, what year did you retire? So it was 2017, early 2017. I stepped down first as CEO, uh, and then Dan Arnold uh, replaced me as CEO. He's both CEO and president. He's done a great job uh, since I've left. Uh, and then I stepped down as chairman in uh, March of 17, and Jim Putnam, who was the lead independent director, took over as chairman of the company at that stage. So we also used it as a chance to, to uh, change corporate governance slightly. Um, this is a good time to do it. So uh, it was a very orderly transition, uh, long plan succession process. Uh, and so that frankly is my proudest achievement is uh, I always said to the group as I was leaving, you know, how I will be judged is not what I did, you know, through early 2017, how I will be judged is, but what you all do after I leave, mm-hmm, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, they've managed to do some remarkable things since then. So I'm very proud of them and, and really pleased with that process. Now you, you, you did. And, and candidly, uh, I'd be remiss if professionally that that was absolutely noticed by everyone in, in the uh, advisory community. I mean, th- that transition was, was unbelievably seamless and, and Dan's been on a rocket ship yeah. Uh, ever since then. And it's just been phenomenal to, to, to watch. And, well, and, and Mark, that's, that's the legacy one is after, right? Is that, that you left things in good shape. We had done a rebuilding of the technology. We rebuilt the entire footprint from a space standpoint, believe it or not, uh, of the entire company. We made some changes in management that needed to be made. I was teasing Dan as I was leaving and I said, well, it's got the new car smell. Don't wrap it around a tree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would love to have seen a picture of his face when you said that. He, he, he broke out laughing as he should. <laughs> <laughs> and what you know, to, to, you know, go back as I think for the benefit of our listeners, you know, one one of the things that that you know we we wish we could say that your your ride as CEO was just smooth as silk, but let's be <laughs> yeah, candid. I mean, you, yeah, you, you you had a I mean, not the least of which was was uh, you know the financial crisis, and as, as you were. You know, we could probably spend hours just talking about that. But but as you were navigating, period, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how what, what were there any epiphanies during GFC where where you know there you are, you're about you know at that time probably six or seven years ahead of retirement. But were were you starting to see things during GFC that that you said, hey, all things being equal, let alone for LPL, but for the industry we need to start doing things differently. I mean, was, was part of that what, what led you to start thinking about Vestigo as, as, as post-LPL was seeing what happened during GFC and what could be done better? It's a great question. I didn't see what has now become Vestigo so much during that phase. That, you know, of course, was eight, 2008, 2009 for me. 
remember we took the company public in 2010, which was a gutsy move, let's say. But we, we had to do it because we needed liquidity for a significant percentage of shareholders whose options were going to mature. Um, mm-hmm. didn't, didn't include me as the CEO, but included a lot of long-serving employees. And we didn't want to have them uh, you know, accidentally, if you will, lose incredible value in the company. It just wasn't fair. So we really had to push it, you know, in, in eight, nine, and ten to to get ourselves where we needed to. So my focus is really about capital structure during that phase and endurance of the franchise. Uh, and then the next thing to really focus on that you could see boiling at that moment was legislative change. Um, our model in the U.S. is an unusual model in that it's an unaffiliated group of advisors, meaning they don't sell a specific product. They are truly independent, uh, and they're allowed to sell any number of things across you know, the financial services landscape, uh, and that model is, is different, and, and it would mm-hmm. be easy to change it in a way that really destroyed it in the, in the midst of trying to solve for the problem that was occurring during the financial crisis uh, and thinking through capital requirements and thinking through fiduciary obligations and the like. So we try to be very supportive. We started up our efforts in Washington to you know, lobby for the various models of financial advice and what we thought would be good governance for retail financial advice in the U.S. Long story there, but there's basically four regulators uh, across that one type of, of uh, advice giving. Uh, we were advocating to try to get to a single federal regulator for it, but we didn't succeed, unfortunately, uh, from there. So that was really what most of it. My time was spent thinking about capital structure and regulatory change. <laughs> and once we got through it and we got the company public in November of 2010, then we focused on where are we in our particular journey um, and where do we want to take the company from here? And that's when we basically rebuilt our technologies, rebuilt our our plant, if you will, and equipment, um, and really had a, a very significant growth spurt. We also did have some challenges in terms of you know, that technology rollout. We had some challenges that related to regulatory items, uh, all in, in the area of transparency. So as we went to go fix something that had been a longstanding process, inevitably find some things that aren't so pleasant, um, and you've got to clean them up. And the good news is we were able to get through that phase relatively quickly and you know, ended up in a very good relationship with our regulators uh, and importantly, um, really helped rebuild the company uh, so that it could start to grow um, you know, from there. So it was really in that digging of technology a few years later, Frank, that um, you know, the significance of technology, what was available to you in terms of tools, the startups that we were starting to see to come into the space <laughs> that intrigued me to think about what that might that next chapter might look like for me. How would you, and was there, was a, was there a driver in, in some folks when they look at FinTech, uh, you'll, you'll hear them talk about um, the ability to, you know, provide, you make, make financial services ubiquitous, or you'll, you'll hear folks talk about a financial inclusion aspect of it was, was, was there a driver like that for you as it related to transitioning from LPL to Vestigo in terms of, you know, like theoretically providing and democratizing finance, you know, so that anyone could, could access it? Or, or was it also there's some really, really neat technology that, that, that could really move the needle for the industry just in its current status quo mode? And, and Yeah, what- it's a great question, right? There's lots of different pieces to the puzzle. There were three main drivers for me. One was my desire to give back, that when I looked at my career and I looked at what I had learned around technology applications and financial services, 
over a 35 plus year career, I recognized that I had been given a lot, if you will, in the form of people bringing smart technology ideas or people working hard towards serving consumers uh, with technology and the like. And I thought this is a really good way to give back, you know, in that same vein. <clears throat> but by doing so, you're helping entrepreneurs um, understand what they're trying to solve, what technologies they're applying, and what kind of clients they might be able to get among the incumbents. So that was the first driver, was give back to the industry by helping create an environment that helps startups be successful. Second is that the industry needs to change, and it's because of inclusion or a lack of it, and it's because of a lack of diversity. It's because of a lack of uh, you know, real thoughtfulness around how to approach the market in the U.S., which is a distinctively complex. Um, and we came to two key drivers, Frank, that, that have guided us as we opened Fund 1 and now invested it, and as we opened Fund 2. Um, and those two key drivers are about lowering costs in uh, financial services and about delighting clients. <clears throat> because if you lower costs, what's going to happen is you're going to open up the market to more people to use you because you're going to be obviously less expensive, <laughs> more efficient at what you're doing, um, and as, in general, just cost less you know, even to existing clients. Uh, and then secondly, in terms of delighting clients, uh, is that that we make we create a lot of barriers in financial services. I think adding an unnecessary complexity because it sort of feels good, right, <laughs> to be the interpreter of that complexity, um, mm -hmm. and you know that 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 complexity sometimes gets invented to essentially create a barrier between you know the the ultimate owner of those assets, the retail investor, uh, and or the person at the bank or whatever else it might be who's using those services. And what I saw was a chance to say, let's make this as simple as, you know, ordering a car from your local car service, right? From, you know, in the U.S. case, Lyft or Uber, um, or in the case of, of, you know, ordering online, you know, your favorite retailer. Those are simple tasks, easily done, well understood, quite transparent. Not at all the case in financial services. So that was the second driver was changing the industry, you know, through that means. And then the third was personal, which is that I wanted to learn something new. And, you know, the, the act of investing, while I'd done some as an angel, and I'd helped friends who were venture capitalists, and I worked a lot uh, with the PE firms that had invested in LPL, uh, and a variety of deals they did, I, I really wanted to, to learn more about what it meant to be a venture investor in early stage companies, and then how best to help those companies succeed, you know, once you've backed them. That's interesting, and 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 I'd like to um, I'm, I'd like to just twist a couple things that you've said because, sure. uh, and again, just to play devil's advocate with you, the I, I and, and and feel free to disagree, but but I part of me has always felt that the the description of fintech and describing it as innovation and disruption is a little bit of spin on the on the part of market participants, meaning. Yeah. Um, you know, Mark, you and I have have gray hair. You know, we both cut our hair pretty close, so people can't see the gray hair. But I, I always, I, I like bringing people back to the dot com era, and 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 I poke fun at some of the fintech folks, especially the the younger folks. And I say to them, you know, the reality is the majority of the technology that you're looking at today is the same stuff we were looking at in '01, mm -hmm. except the regulators wouldn't let you do it. So, like, let's just say, for example, peer to peer lending. And even the concept of a distributed ledger, you know, as everybody goes into blockchain, right. uh, again, you know, we could argue the central banks have been using this for years. It's just now it's commercializing itself into, into a, a retail use. What, what do you, 
with with that kind of cynical you know view on my end I, one of the things that that i feel has been there and i'd be curious as to your thoughts is that part of the reason why the regulators are now allowing this and and we can talk about you know the irony of allowing a technology which actually disrupts the you know a core part of the system and the systemic risk that it introduces but to your point on lower costs you know, the, I remembered I was I was at one conference and someone said, look, if you look at, you know, market returns and if market returns are going to be lower, period, you know, like you had Warren Buffett saying you can't use 8% as an equity return in the market. Was this a function of the regulators? And again, I'm oversimplifying this, but was this a function of the regulators saying, look, we do need to introduce lower costs and we do need to have some flexibility around allowing this technology it, you know, to, in the market and to be ubiquitous. And I'll give you like one, one, one simple point and we, and you can rip it apart. But, you know, if, if we go back four or five years ago, the idea that TD and Schwab would have commission-free trading was insane. That, that would not happen. We all thought Robinhood was insane. That, right. that business model. Could they possibly do that. Yeah. Right. And, and then now fast forward and, and you look at, the, the massive change, not the least of which is TD and Schwab merging. But is this with a wink and a nod by the regulators? Are, are they in line with you in realizing, look, we've got to get the cost structure lower because the, the, there's a whole other issue in terms of unfunded liabilities that we have to start thinking about. And if market returns are lower, we, we've got to get the cost structure lower uh, versus how much of this was truly innovation and entrepreneurship and a bunch of young people coming up with a bunch of ideas that nobody thought of before. Yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a complex question. We've got to break it down, man. <laughs> it's apparently bite-sized pizzas are not your thing. <laughs> so <laughs> you, I can see why you're a Yankees fan. you got a big idea. All those trophies have got in your head. So <laughs> I, think, I think there's a couple things that, that we have to think about. One is, do I believe disruption in the traditional way we've seen disruption in consumer-based industries is likely to happen in financial services? Heck no, right? That's that's not likely to happen. I don't see someone creating a better taxi service called Uber, right? I don't see somebody create. I think even robo advice you know, has been well overrated in the U.S. market. It works elsewhere for a different reason, but to a U.S. consumer, it just doesn't doesn't work well at all. So it is very tough to create a B two C business that's going to truly disrupt, you know, the, uh, the 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 incumbents and the way the industry has operated. That I agree with you on. I disagree with you, though, on thinking about disruption in a different way, which is is innovation. And, and the innovation that counts is, can I be a lower cost you know, producer in asset management and banking and insurance? And I don't mean, you know, skin flint, El Cheapo you know, kind of, of things, but I mean, you know, can I use that pricing to my advantage? What is brilliant about Schwab, both in terms of their acquisition of TD Ameritrade and in their going to zero pricing, is they are seeing what the market is responding to, like zero trading from Robinhood, and saying there is something there. And while I don't have to do that for my existing book to be, my existing business to be successful, if I do that, I will entice a whole new set of clients that otherwise will go to the Robinhoods of the world. And that will allow them to create a business that actually could disrupt me over a number of years. So I think the brilliance of, of the disruption here is that the incumbents are adopting the the you know techniques of lower pricing, delighting clients, my themes, um, and that's that's really why this revolution is different, right, in financial services than it is in retail or it is in in other consumer places. Again, particularly in the U.S. 
Um, so I, I do think there's disruption. I do think there's real innovation. I think those incumbents who who very quickly move towards experimentation and success and failure in working with startups or doing some of their own things are the likely ones that are going to be winners uh, in this next phase for financial services. And those who don't and just kind of idly, you know, dismiss uh, any model they see are, are likely to be left behind um, because they're going to miss this chance to really get to know their client and do something that is unique for them that that feels just right in a way um, other services do in other industries. And, and along that, I'd, I'd be curious if, if I could have you wear your, your Vestigo hat uh, for a second, because the along the lines of, of the incumbents, one, one of the ironies, and I fully agree with you, because I think that one of the ironies of this, if you look at uh, not only Schwab going to commissionless trading, but, but uh, also the merger with TD, but also the subtlety of a few weeks ago uh, where they bought Motif. And they, they picked up all the IP, the yeah. tech and, and the team. And, you know, there were two things that stood out to me because all because to your point, all along, Schwab could have replicated Motif's model. There was nothing stopping them from they, they could have replicated it in a heartbeat, um, but they didn't. And and the and two, it was what was interesting about that transaction was seeing a right. large organization like Schwab. Yep you know, effectively do it in two weeks. Cause just because literally Motif came out with a press release said, we're done, we're shutting down. And then two and a half weeks later, Schwab's like, okay, we bought them, which was you know unheard of in terms of a turnaround time for, for a deal team. To and do and that. then Goldman Sachs essentially do the next response, which was to buy Folio FN. They each bought yep. the only platforms that can do fractionalization of shares in, again, in the, in the U S market. And, you know, what they're doing is brilliantly, again, trying to outdo themselves, right? To essentially disrupt themselves by saying that a real innovation in the world is quite easily seen before us, right? Which is before I sold you a mutual fund, and that was a good exposure and a smart way to do it. And it was cheaper than, uh, you know, what was otherwise available to you as a consumer. If you were a small investor, you just couldn't get the kind of diversification outside of what a mutual fund could do for you. That was an incredible innovation when it occurred mm-hmm. in the 19, you know, 20s, 1930s uh, in the U.S. market. I think it was 1930s. And then um, you know, what came along were ETFs, of course, in this last decade, who have sort of eaten the mutual fund companies' lunches because they're a cheaper version of the same idea. Um, you know, they're essentially 30 basis points, so significantly lower in cost because there's a lot less administration. There's no board. There's a lot less that gets done. I guess it doesn't really matter why, right? But now what's happening is people are realizing, hey, wait a minute, in a world of free trading, now I can bring you the ultimate in personalization, the ultimate in delighting you as a client by creating for you a customized S&P 500 index product. Mm-hmm. Right. So I can say, oh, you don't like this kind of company because it, it doesn't meet your values, then it won't be in the S&P and I'll replace it with something else. Oh, you've got a tax problem where you need to have you know, some gains uh, fostered this year. I can do that for you and I can trade your individual securities in a way that does that. You know, you, you uh, have a particular belief in one industry versus another. I can you know, tweak that for you along the line. So I can truly create a highly personalized set of exposures for you based on your risk, comfort, and, and your values. That, how wonderful is that, 
right? That's a perfect example of trying to create because there's free trading and now there's a effectively Schwab motif, I think for next to nothing, um, yeah. a technology in place that uh, allows them to do that. It also means the rest of the industry will have to respond, right? They won't have access to those two technologies. I know there's a mad dash by many of them out there to, uh, to find solutions. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure they will through companies like Bestmark and Investnet and a few others uh, who will be able to do that for them. And that's going to drive in a whole new era of being able to service a set of clients who couldn't be serviced before because it's effectively free indexing, right? That's going to be happening for the consumer. And, and, and to that point, let, let's, let, let's play a little bit on the Vestigo side. Does, does this mm-hmm. subtly change your model in terms of the anticipated exit? Because uh, we're, 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 seeing, we're seeing very much the same thing here, where, where here in, in, in Asia, in particular Southeast Asia, um, the, the platforms and the strength of the platform. So for example, an Ant Financial, which, is, which just has the ability to do everything. So th- this is here, as you know, would be the equivalent of <clears throat> if Amazon and Facebook truly were financial services companies yeah. as well, in addition to everything else that they're doing. And does this change your model though? As a, and I'll share with you an, a, a story because I'm wondering now as a VC in the old days, your hope was, hey, hopefully the company will go public and we'll get a massive return on it. But is the opportunity for now for Vestigo, does it shift slightly where, where now you say, you know, to your point on lowering costs and delighting clients, is it more targeted where you can now look at these incumbents and say, look, I actually understand your portfolio gaps. I understand the missing pieces in your off, like just the way that you were triaging through Vestmark and Investnet. Is it a function now of saying to these folks, look, I've got a portfolio of companies at Vestigo. They satiate that portfolio gap for you. Let's just say it's share fractionalization. And I also know relative to my LPs that we're, we're managing them that, that none of these guys are going to IPO, that, that the majority of what we're going to see right now is M&A with, with existing incumbents. Yeah. Does that no, shift I've, the model? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't shift the model for us because that's the way we entered the business. And you know, remember that our fund was launched in 17, so it's not that old. Um, and so we basically came into it believing that this highly personalized Lower cost. Did we predict these exactly that Motif would be bought by Schwab? Heck no. But, but did we predict that trading would get closer and closer to zero and that fractionalization would matter? Yes. And that's why we invested in Bestmark um, now about two and a half years ago uh, on the back of Summit Partners doing a growth equity investment. We were able to, to join them in that uh, and put some capital work for our LPs. It's why we invested our second company we invested in back in 17 was Life Yield, which does householding. Does uh, basically across all assets, whether they're held, say an LPL or a Schwab, uh, it can look at across the entire uh, family's household, understand how those assets interact, and then tax optimize those assets both by structure, by registration, and the like. Without again getting into too much detail, so they effectively solve another problem that's within fractionalization, which is tax outcomes. And so we basically tried to invest along these lines uh, that were here. We also didn't invest in any B2C companies that were trying to disrupt through robo-type activities, uh, although we had opportunities to invest in them. Um, and we, we avoided you know, those that we felt were, were trying to sort of you know, take a charge at the asset management or asset investing industry through a B2C model. We just didn't think they would be successful because we felt the incumbents would respond. Um, and therefore, we'd rather, you know, have Life Yield, who works with 
Morgan Stanley and LPL and Merrill Lynch and others to uh, to bring them the tools they need to, to successfully uh, create these same capabilities in house. So, so for us, Frank, it hasn't hasn't been any different than our original thesis. Um, you know, just it, it sort of works its way through. We also felt that our companies would likely be taken out through M and A. I would say that what has surprised us is that M and A process has happened at much earlier stages than we expected. Um, yeah. We had a company bought uh, literally three months after we <laughs> invested in it. It was a heck of a return for us, which was great. Uh, but boy, we'd like to hold them a little bit longer than that um, if we can. Um, we also think that, that you know, so it is unlikely that we felt it was unlikely that for the most part, we wouldn't see IPOs. We would see M&A activity. Um, there's a lot of it going on. I think it will only heat up once we get through you know, this period that's a, a bit unusual to say the least uh, in the markets. And, and to your point, you know, um... Uh, one one thing that, that we saw here that was interesting, and I'd, I'd be curious as to your thoughts, was the uh, obviously from a from a platform perspective, one of the conversations now it's almost amusing is that when American firms come here, and we've actually mentioned uh, one of them in particular, yeah. but when when they came here to to Southeast Asia, and and a big part of their value proposition was, look, we have several million accounts, and you know our client acquisition costs are are very efficient. And I remembered the platform sitting across the table laughing, and, and sure. had, yeah, and 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 they were like, we have no client acquisition costs, it's yeah. zero. <laughs> yeah, and so so that and, and along that, what 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 you know, as we look at. And I'm going to oversimplify this. As we look at China and and now as we look at India, I had the most. I'd be curious as to your your response to this. I had the most interesting conversation with a GP at a very very large globally global VC franchise, just mm-hmm. to, to household name. <laughs> and the GP said to me, "Now with the 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 Joe deal, we're now with Microsoft, KKR, Vista, uh, Facebook, all plowing." tens of billions of dollars in, into geo in, uh, in India mm-hmm. that the GP said, uh, guess what? We, we're done. And I, and I, I asked him, I said, what do you mean you're done? I said, you're, you're a household name in the VC community. You've got a great portfolio. And he said, no, he said, it's over. He said, what, what we're witnessing now is this is India's response to China. Mm-hmm. And they now have with Ambani, someone who sits both in the public and private sector and his control is absolute. Over, over the economy. There, there will be no more innovation. Nobody's going public. You're, you're based, and to your point, Mark, which I thought was interesting, he almost said the exact same thing. He said, now they, they are simply identifying IP and it's a build it, buy it paradigm. But he said, there's no entrepreneurial ecosystem anymore. He said, those days are done. He said, it's really a function of, hey, maybe the guys can be a little bit more innovative and can get, and from a time to market perspective, they can do it right. faster than our own internal culture can can do it. So Yeah, I, I think, Frank, we started from there, right? Because the U.S. consumer and the Canadian consumer was educated quite differently in financial services than the Asian consumer or, frankly, any consumer away from, from Canada and the U.S. It, we are very odd markets um, because we basically took the middle class and and in particular in the U.S. market and the Canadian market and taught them that they need to go to multiple places to get things done. Go to the insurance agent for insurance, go to um, your, your bank for banking services, go to your securities broker for you know trading, go to your financial advisor for financial advice. We, we completely deconstructed their choices in the post-depression you know, area, 
era, uh, you know, with all the different rules that were created to separate these financial entities. In every other part of the world, that phase never really occurred because the middle class didn't grow until after that period of time. So they grew with these sort of omnipresent uh, organizations. So in Europe, you know, the the, the major banks um, that we all know and love uh, essentially do all those things for you. You get all your insurance, all your needs there. So so it's very tough to innovate against them because they have such incredible control of markets. In Asia and Africa, I'd argue that actually it's the technology companies, right? as we've talked about before uh, in numerous occasions, that are the ones who really have taught the consumer some really great basics about finances and how to get exposures to certain things and have really brought in low-cost activity because they do have you know zero customer acquisition cost, right? They can afford to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so each of these journeys of, of uh, populations is really critically important to understand. It is actually why at Vestigo we do focus on U.S. Uh, consumer companies. It could be a company based in Singapore selling its services around the globe, including the U.S. That would count. But but we generally have had most of the companies have been based in the U.S., focusing on the U.S. consumers or Canadian consumers from there, because the journeys are quite different. And the journeys matter when it comes to what the consumer is willing to do. Um, a consumer here may love Amazon and might answer an, uh, uh, a survey that says, would you trust Amazon to do your banking? Yes. But their behaviors has something quite different than that, right? Or I'd trust Apple to be my bank, but their behavior says something quite different than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's really important to understand. So you've got to marry the structural forces that you just described, the consumer journeys that have been quite different for these different populations, and then where is technology in terms of its ability to deliver? Uh, technology has never been a better place to deliver, right? AI in particular is just bringing all sorts of benefits to the market, all sorts of insights into populations and things you can do, really driving down costs. So we're in a great time for the technology. Uh, I think, you know, in terms of, again, despite the, the current crisis, you know, pandemic, which is horrible, uh, but once we get through that, which I certainly fervently believe we will, you know, we, the, the economies are incredible around the globe. There's a lot of wealth creation at all levels that, you know, then needs to be serviced and, and taken care of. So you've got a great opportunity there. But structurally, you do have, you know, these different ways that each country, each region is going about what it allows uh, in terms of regulatory issues or in terms of competition uh, and the like. And Mark, with that, I'm, I'm going to, uh, going back to your earlier uh, poke in the ribs, I'm going to be the, <laughs> the, 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 the Yankee fan here for a second. I'm going to ask you a, a big question. And it, uh, but you, <laughs> so, <laughs> we do have fewer trophies, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, but let, let, let's, let's uh, uh, and by the way, I want to thank you again for your time here, because I know we're a little bit over our scheduled time. This is, uh, we could easily be on, on this for, for a few hours. <laughs> let me, um, Sapnandu Mahanti, who heads up the, the fintech effort at the MAS, he made a great comment at a conference that I love, I love using, where he said that if, if, if he was talking to an, an audience of, of financial professionals, and he said, if, if you actually looked at what I am doing online, which Google knows, he said, none of you would have any interaction with me ever again. He goes, <laughs> and he used it as a, as a laugh. Mm. And, but there was truth to that. And, and I'd be curious as to, because one of the other things we've seen now in a COVID world has been the, the discussion around privacy. And, yeah. and in fact, the New York Times had a great piece this weekend talking about the irony that 
the protesters are using their mobile phones to organize, but at the same time, they don't recognize that they're being tracked. So they're, they're actually losing control of uh, both in Hong Kong and in the States that, yeah. that the, the authorities are monitoring them. And to that end, there was another interesting article a week before that, where Facebook had acknowledged that they have concluded that their algorithms optimize to create divisiveness. So in other words, the more inflammatory and irrational the material being sent to an end user, the, the end user will engage you with, in, in, will engage with it. So the, mm-hmm. the more that it makes them nervous or anxious, you know, they'll, they'll That's interact. That's the same reason newspapers used to print only bad headlines, right? <laughs> or exactly. In your stream of news, it's going to give you a really salacious headline because that's going to get your attention. That yep. is the human condition. I agree. Yep. And and so along along those lines, you know, to, to your point, math. I've always been fascinated by the ethics around: Do you really give the end consumer the choice? M- meaning, there is enough, you know, and, and based on some of the insurance companies that you and I know, there's enough information out there where the insurance company can actually know more about the client than what the client will disclose to them in order for the insurance, yeah, in order for them to underwrite the risk. Absolutely. At, at what point is, or is there a point where you, you, you say to the end user, especially in financial services, where, where the, the costs or of mistakes can, can be devastating? Is there a point where you say to them, you know what, we need to kind of take it from here because you can't be making decisions based off of Facebook because that's just a, you know, a bad actor's dream, you know, where they can behaviorally just manipulate you into an outcome. And and at the same time, given the extraordinary amount of information that's available, where you could technically develop a risk profile of the user, that's like like you know now as you know they're creating digital identities for folks. They're doing this where they can they they're now creating very robust credit profiles using information that the credit yeah. bureaus use. Hundreds of ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And do we do, does the industry is, is there a point where the industry just says, hey, the, the end consumer actually doesn't know what they're doing. And, and we need to, you know, because to your point, they've, 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 they've streamed it down, they've, they've called down costs. But is there a point where, where that responsibility is almost taken away from, from the end consumer or maybe minimized given the ubiquity of some of these tools? Well, I would argue that the consumer has, has ceded that responsibility already. And the reason is, is they want convenience, right? They want to not pay for searches. They, they want to have a product that is put in front of them that is likely to something they buy. It makes it easier for them. Uh, And I've seen plenty of studies. I've seen plenty of actions, plenty of data that tells me that consumers are more than happy to give up privacy for convenience uh, and for low cost. So I I think we've already crossed that Rubicon. I think what actually is needed uh, along your lines though, Frank is, is something a little different. Uh, It's the way I feel about capitalism as well. If we want to go there, um, which is that we need to rethink you know, what it means. We've already given up privacy, so that that is already done. But what we need to think about is what are the biases that algorithms have and how do we make that transparent and how might we um, even create a way for the consumer, the informed press, you know, the governmental authorities to know those biases in, in algorithms. Um, I was on the board of a large bank here in the U.S. market for six years, wonderful organization, started using AI and they went to particularly careful straits to make sure that they could test the biases that AI had for making credit decisions, uh, mm-hmm. which I applauded and very much you know, agreed and, and from the board seat suggested they do so they can see that either it does have a bias they have to take care of, 
uh, or it doesn't. And then they have to reprove it constantly, right? You can't just do it once and it's set for five years. You've got to do it every year. Um, and the same is true, I think, for you know the, the algorithms you mentioned, which is that they are biased. There's no doubt about it. Um, everything is biased, right? But the question is, can I make that transparent enough so it's known that what its bias is? And then might there be regulatory uh, structures in various you know, governments uh, or even on a voluntary basis by the tech companies in particular to say, I'm going to expose that through transparency. Then the press is free to see it and the consumer is free to see it and consumer advocates are free to see it. And secondly, I'm going to you know, do robust testing uh, to prove that, you know, to essentially know how it, how it biases itself. And I think you could even go further along and say there might be regulation that forces um, you know, uh, that biases to, to be both exposed and to be changed when it shows that it does harm. Um, and this is an ever-evolving and constantly changing game, so to speak, or battle that, you know, has to be monitored by well-informed authorities that are there. So I, I do think that we're going to head towards that. It's, as I said, it's similar to my view for capitalism, which is capitalism has been a fantastic system. It's lifted, you know, billions of people out of poverty it's, you know, babies are healthier. You know, the world is a much better place, much more educated than it ever has been in its entire history, and it will only get better from here. So the question is, how do you reform capitalism in a way that takes into account some broader issues? When I was the you know chairman and CEO of a public company, my responsibility was quite clear. I have a fiduciary obligation to my shareholders, full stop, right? Nothing else. And, uh-huh. and, and, I didn't run the company that way. I mean, certainly adhere to my rules and responsibilities, but of course you try to take into account your employees and your customers and their customers in my case. Um, and I think it would be easy to imagine a world where we started to think about structures for companies, both public and private that take into account constituencies and how do you make sure those constituencies are well served? So there are a lot of parallels between corporate governance, um, fairness standards and transparency, uh, and a lot of, of transparent, a lot of, of parallels to that, to this, this data question or data and privacy issue that you raised. Unbelievable. You know, Mark, uh, again, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Can't, cannot thank you enough for, for taking time out in, in your evening. And we, uh, uh, you were gracious enough to let us go uh, over our limit, and and we managed to do it without any hard snide baseball comments. So we did navigate that well. Yeah, we barely touched that one, but we will hope for good baseball because there's nothing better than a Yankees and Red Sox series. I got to say, uh, no oh, matter, it's a, it's a fantastic thing to watch, and we're all hoping for sport to return. No, it's going to be a welcome distraction, and and I, I know the kids are looking forward to it as well. It, it, yeah. it was always a, a you know, and even hockey. You know, I, I mean, all the, the winter and summer and spring staples. Any, any sport will do at this stage in my family. I think we we were like the second week in you know what has been our quarantine in the state of Massachusetts, um, where you're you know, truly inside in a way. Is it one of our kids texted and said, "Hey, there's a uh, rock skipping contest that's on." <laughs> Yeah, we all tuned in from across the country. I have four kids, four adult kids, and and, uh, and watched it, you know, simultaneously texting back and forth. Look at that guy's outfit. Boy, he did a good job. I could never do 13 steps. a bad statement about our, our missing need for sports. <laughs> Unbelievable. Mark, again, this is fantastic. And, and what I'd love to do, if you don't mind, I think in a uh, post-COVID world, I'd love to have you on in the next uh, couple of months as, as you know, things start to reopen. And, yeah, it'll be great. Look forward you know, to it. And uh, and again, so thank you, Mark, and, and for our listeners, thank you again for tuning in this week to Unhedged. As always in this COVID world, please be safe, 
at home with your families. We wish you all the very best, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Mark, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.